1: broadcasting on D.A.B. and via the internet 24 hours a day.
2: Assalamu alaikum wa wa barakatuh. Welcome to another live program here on Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, today you're joined by myself and Imran here in the studio um, as we bring you uh, another two great topics to uh, discuss today in today's program. Um, We're going to start off with um, uh, the very current topic um, that has dominated the news, um, and that is regarding the head covering or the hijab, um, a a, a, piece of garment that is used to cover the head. Um, And and the reason why we're going to talk about that is obviously because many of you might have heard about the unrest and the protests Taking place uh, in Iran currently, and these protests um, are basically, um, you know, in response or out of the killing actually of a young uh, woman by Iran's so-called um, morality police after she was arrested for not covering her, um, you know, her hair properly. Um, that is uh, essentially what the protest is about. And however, the Iranian authorities are saying that they did not kill; rather, she uh, died, uh, you know, um, because of some other reasons. However, we, it's not clear. But what is what is clear is that that incident has sparked huge protests in uh, Iran, where uh, people feel that the state is controlling or um, dictating the, um, you know, how people are going to live, how people are going to, you know, dress, and how people are going to behave. However, we have seen obviously the in, on social media how much uh, um, how much uproar and protest it has been um, there, but also in terms of um, the misconceptions about hijab, where people are, you know, burning hijab as if the hijab in itself is a problem as if that headscarf which is nothing but a you know a, a uh, um a piece of garment that is used for modesty and that is being burnt um, and and you do wonder that what does what does uh, somebody get out of burning uh, a hijab which of course um is um, is just a piece of garment but that is the way People are um, protesting uh, in Iran um, in in greater numbers now. Um, At the same time, of course, female students are petitioning the Indian Supreme Court to be allowed to wear their hijab in school in the state of uh, Karnataka. So we see these two uh, different situations where um, the state is actually, uh, or, or different authorities are actually stepping in and trying to control or force people maybe to um, wear the hijab or the headscarf and on the other side people have to fight for their own right to wear the hijab in places that they can't wear it Mm
1: -hmm. so the
2: question here is um, you know who decides uh, what you are going to uh, wear how you can dress and what does you know our uh, religion Islam as we are you know talking here on Voice of Islam radio station Imran I think um, it's a very pertinent issue isn't it we have been seeing on social media and also on the news about this issue Um, and of course I think we have it's important that we tackle this misconception about hijab here on Voice of
1: Islam I mean uh, Safir you're absolutely right as you mentioned that uh uh um at the same time uh uh in india um women are um protesting or uh, uh petitioning in this in their supreme court uh um um against uh the um uh, that government government is um basically trying to ban the hijab in school but uh mm-hmm. at the same time in iran um uh girls are burning their hijab so it's a totally uh i mean uh uh different situation but uh, yeah the big question is uh, whether someone is uh, uh, whether government or some individual is allowed to i mean um, um, pr- propagate uh, teaching of islam or uh, com- there is a compulsion in religion or not so it's a big mm. question yeah.
2: yeah and in both of these cases uh imran we see that especially male lawmakers mm-hmm. uh, men are and, and authorities i should say are imposing their view on how a woman should uh, dress.
1: Absolutely. There
2: are many misconceptions about uh, this type of uh, you know thing, especially hijab in the West. There's from mm-hmm. time to time discussions that you know hijab should not be allowed. You know we know the the example of France, for example, where they're very previously and also uh, now very much against that, even to yeah. that extent that hijab is not allowed. Uh, or veils are not allowed in i mean in yeah
1: if you l- look yeah. at uh the current history of uh the Iran in uh nineteen seventies, so they were totally like uh they have the so called uh you say western culture they were totally you know um uh, uh, women are not uh, um they were just not um practicing islam, but uh nowadays we have another extreme where they uh put uh, you know uh, so-called moral police uh, to just, uh, you know, oblige the practice, uh, see, uh, the hijab to enforce hijab on women so mm. there's too extreme, you know, uh, situation in Iran um, yeah. yeah and I think what people obviously listening and also seeing what's
2: happening on the news have to remember is that Islam is, is a religion of peace. Right? right, right. So Islam does not want to create disorder in the society.
1: Absolutely. And,
2: you know, the, the, the way Islam operates or the way the religion is, is that, La Ikraha Fi You know, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says that there is no compulsion in, in religion. In Absolutely. Islam, there is, there is in Deen, in, in religion, there is no compulsion. However, Islam obviously gives guidance, so the guidance is there for people to choose to follow. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there the Muslims, once you' become a Muslim, then you dedicate yourself to follow the Islamic teachings, which you know, and we all know is good for you, and there is a purpose behind every commandment, but nobody has the right to enforce Islam upon other people, you know Absolutely. that's where uh, things get wrong, whether it's hijab or any other issue, whenever any state, any authority try to force people to mm-hmm. do um, certain things uh, because of religion, and it doesn't really, uh, you know, it's not just uh, with the Islamic, so-called Islamic countries, but if you look at other countries, uh, which may follow different other religions, maybe right. right. Christian, uh, Christian religion or Judaism, mm-hmm. if they start forcing people to do something um because their religion says so then that creates trouble because you will have in the country people who are maybe not that religious or people who are not even following any religion people yeah. who who do not be- believe in religion so you know the separation of state and the separation of belief is uh, it's important one and i think islam creates a solution to that that again there is no compulsion in religion for you Lakum dinukum Waliyadin And for you, for you, your religion, for me, my religion And again, that's something that we see at the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam Prophet Islam. Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as well, Imran Wasn't it that at the time of um, you know the Holy Prophet when he was, uh, you could say, you know, the king of Medina mm-hmm. Or he was in charge of Medina right. There were different tribes living uh, under the uh, you know Muslim uh, authority but they were free to follow their own religion and and, and practice their own religion, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, um, as we as you mentioned that uh, if you if you um, read Quran or the life of the Holy Prophet sallam, you will not find a single incident where he uh, where Islam or the Holy Prophet sallam, encouraged the forcing of religious practices. Rather, you will find a totally different view um, that. Uh, uh, Islam does not allow forcing um of religious practices. As you mentioned, the words uh, like rafidin" that there is no compulsion in religion, and uh, mm-hmm. you also mentioned that uh, uh, you know "lakum dinukum waliyadin" for you your religion and for me my religion. And I just remember another verse from the Holy Quran, uh, which says that uh, you know we have uh, not sent thee as a guardian over them. Your duty mm-hmm. is only to convey the message. So yeah. our duty is only to convey the message. We are not here to, you know, force uh, religious practice on anyone. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, spot on. I think um, that's exactly why the Holy Prophet uh, of Islam was sent, and that's exactly what Islam, you know, presents a religion that does not need to be forced. It's so beautiful, the philosophy and the teaching of Islam, that it naturally uh, people should be attracted to that, and that is. Um, the essence of Islam. Unfortunately, what we see in so-called Islamic countries, mm-hmm. they claim to be Muslim, but their practices are, um, you know, different from the Islamic teaching. Right. The worldwide Head of the Muslim Community has said that when it comes to uh, the practice of uh, hijab, we have talked about the head covering, but in fact hijab means covering and covering, um, when it comes to uh, modesty, Mm -hmm. has been mentioned uh, for men and women. And in fact, it has been mentioned um, and it has been uh, directed towards the men first in the Holy Qur'an. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think uh, later on we'll mention the verse where where it actually says that men should keep their um, eyes down and guard their uh, private parts. And then, you know, the same commandment has been mentioned for the women But His Holiness, um, he said that first it is the men who are commanded to practice restraining their gaze. They should restrain their eyes from uh, gawking at anything prohibited and they should not unnecessarily stare at women. Mm -hmm. So what really is the hijab according to religious texts? Is it something that's oppressive or a supreme right? Um, is what we are seeing in the news, like, you know, what's happening in, the, uh, what's, what's happening in Iran. Um, you know, this is, you know, the time that we obviously ask you for your views and your understanding of this. 208 um, 687 is the number to call. Um, you can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments, Imran. Um, I think we should go to our first guest who is uh, with us. Obviously, okay. um, one of our uh, regular guests uh, to join us here on Voice of Islam. We have uh, Anam Islam joining us from uh, uh, Norway, I believe. Um, assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh. Welcome okay. to the Radio <laughs> Show once again.
3: Wa alaikum
2: islam. Wa alaikum uh, for joining us. I mean, of course, this, this uh, discussion about hijab, um, and, and head covering of course is very relevant in as you know, obviously because of the news and uh, the, the, the protests and uh, um, so much that is circulating on, on social media. I think if we start off with um, you know the experience in, in a western country, obviously uh, like yourself living here, uh, how's people's views um, about hijab? In schools, in in the work environment, how do people see it? Um, people who perhaps don't have that deep of a knowledge of the philosophy of hijab or the uh, understanding of the philosophy of modesty in Islam.
3: Um, well, my experience here in Norway, at least, has been I would say generally positive, but obviously it's um, you do have a lot of. Um, and negativity as well from people that don't know too much about the topic. Um, for instance, I had um, I've been working in a shop while I was studying, so I remember customers would, and I was the the first employee at that shop that was wearing a headscarf, and I remember still remember having loads of comments about how it made me look like a terrorist, how it made me look unapproachable, and like a lot of uh, mean words like that. But as time went by, I think People got used to it, and then I worked there for 11 years. It got better. I can't remember getting many bad comments in the recent years. Uh, but in and in yeah, and in schools, I studied law, and law studies is is a um, law is a field where looks matter a lot. And uh, I remember that was probably my biggest worry when I started wearing the headscarf. Uh, because i started uh, right after i started my law studies and i remember i was very scared about how it would be received in the in the, in, the, in the at the university and at that i remember at that time there weren't many muslims female students at, uh, at the Faculty of Law, and the few that were there, none of them wore the headscarf, and I was going to be the first one in, in my class, and I was very worried. I remember being so nervous about it, crying, praying, asking for strength, and I knew that this field would require so much from me, and this field might not expe- accept me. But I remember going to university the first day I wore the headscarf. And not a single person looked at me differently no one asked me anything everyone just went on with their day went on with their studies went on with their projects with me without even asking anything or looking at me like i was different that day and i've generally uh, not experienced a lot in the professional field as well i've been working on the governmental level um, ever since i i finished my studies from from one directory to another and it has uh, Alhamdulillah, been been um, received well. I'm the first lawyer in the current directorate um, who has a, um, a Muslim background, and on top of that, I'm wearing a headscarf. And but I've I've been received really well in in meetings when I'm out presenting, when I'm meeting politicians. It's been generally positive. But I know my experience isn't. Um, the same experience for uh, everyone. I know many people who have received a lot of, um, um, who have not gotten the job they wanted because of their headscarf, who have been discriminated by hairdressers, who've been discriminated in shops, who've experienced things like this in Norway. But It feels like i hear more about it from my friends in for instance france and denmark than i do from my friends here in norway so i know that in the west it's quite different from country to country and i know that my sisters in france don't necessarily have it as easy as i have it or my sisters in denmark because the the view on the headscarf is very much different from country to country so the west doesn't seem to agree on it either Uh, but obviously now with the Uh, demonstrations in Iran. I was thinking that it's going to be much more negative here in Norway as well. Obviously you have all those internet trolls and the comments beneath the news articles saying bad stuff about how Muslim women in Norway should in solidarity with their sisters in Iran. They should take off their headscarves and burn them. And there have been protests here where the headscarf has been burned. And I was uh, was a bit concerned that it's going to create much more negativity in the general society when, when you're walking outside. But so far, so good, um, but it remains to see uh, how it's, it's going to change the narrative. Um,
4: otherwise, Mr. Islam, if I can ask you, why is it that hijab, the topic of hijab, is so mm. newsworthy in the West? Mm. Why is it attra- why does it attract so much attention?
3: It's um, I, I would say it's, it's a phenomena created um by a few negative voices that has i i would say i think it, it started off with just one person being super negative about it and that specific article about it generated so many clicks and so much money and income for the media outlets that they realized that this is the topic to to later on to to hold on to because it generates a lot of um traffic on the internet websites on top of that i would also say it has a bit to do with um how we uh, how people here in the west aren't necessarily familiar with the concept and uh, the, the only narrative they had been presented was the one they were given in history class for instance i remember from my school um days at, at upper secondary school and in in from I remember eighth grade, ninth grade, and in history class, you would talk about countries like um, Saudi Arabia or Iran where women were forced to wear the hijab and they couldn't uh, choose for themselves. And that uh, storyline, that practice of how you're supposed to that practice of those extreme countries sort of became the uh, definition of of the head staff for many people here in the west uh, because uh, someone decided to blow up the stories from from the those muslim countries here in the west and and i think that's and, and it became a thing where You saw more and more people um, being interested in looking at this. And and also, I think it's also because there is a savior complex in the West. We feel like we have to save everyone here in the West, that it's our duty to save the entire world. And when we look at the Muslim women, um, for some reason, Western people think that we need to be saved. And uh, because we are so bad off and you have all the countries that are treating Muslim women bad and not making it exactly any more positive. So I think it's a combination of the history of these countries and how it has been presented here in both the media and its schools and uh, the way it creates a lot of uh, hype, a lot of debates, a lot of clicks, a lot of um, um, traffic on Internet websites um combined with our own actions i would also say i would say here in norway for instance it started off when one iranian woman many many years ago i think this was early 2000s she decided to burn the headscarf outside a mosque here in oslo and i remember after that protest of hers she received several death threats threats from Muslim men and women and she received a lot of backlash uh, by Muslims in in uh, I think in from Iran as well there were reactions and and the, and the yeah a lot of protests and that so I think that behavior of ours as well um, at least here sort of created this um, yeah.
4: Hype around I think. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that totally makes sense. I think uh, mm-hmm. Muslims are uh, to blame, uh, mm-hmm. but this interest in the in, in in the media. Well, Muslims are partly to blame, I'm, I, I'd say, mm-hmm. but this interest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in in the in the Western media, especially around this. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, I uh, don't. We have enough mm-hmm. problems of, of our own at this time. There, there's a huge energy crisis. There's a mm-hmm. cost of living crisis. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, this morning, I I heard on the radio that um, people, some people in this country, don't have uh, enough money to buy their kids uniforms in schools. So uh, okay. you know, this uh, mm-hmm. there the, aren't there too many problems for us to uh, to worry about, rather than you know, thousands of miles away. there's, oh. there's uh, a demonstration happening Whoa. somewhere in iran and and oh. we're talking about uh about that i was looking at uh, you know the our queen recently passed away um mm-hmm. uh may Allah bless her soul um she uh, i was looking at uh a, a collage of her photographs and um in one of them she was wearing um a headscarf. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. uh you know <laughs> is it if it was such a bad thing why was uh, mm-hmm. the queen wearing yeah. it so you know what what is this obsession? Uh, with hijab in the western mm. media specifically mm. uh, is, mm. is, is the question that I'm asking I me mean, is this is this something mm. um, uh, that they um, uh, you know is it uh, is it the modern uh, uh, jihad uh, mm. uh, that uh, the modern form of jihad that, that the western yeah. media has taken up
3: I, I would say it's also yeah it's it's also that the thing is here in the west you're only free if you wear don't wear much clothes. I'll be completely honest. If mm-hmm. you if you dress according to exactly. a very sexual standard that has been set so by so you can take off as many clothing.
4: clothes as you want, but you cannot yeah. you can wear anything. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: you can't wear yeah, it, no, sorry. because it doesn't fit the narrative here. Because when you think of freedom in the West, you automatically think about taking off layer after layer after layer that's that's what freedom is here in the west it is to be able to to walk around have have a beach here in osman for instance people fought for a beach where you can walk around naked mm. and just be free to do that and they've been dedicated an entire area for that and yeah. that for them that is freedom they don't sit look at and then on the contrary on the other side when you see people who want to dress up they think they are uh, constrained like they're um, restricted or they're, they're not free or they, they need some kind of help to be liberated and it doesn't uh, and it's, it's part of that that um, understanding of freedom that they think that freedom is unanimous with uh, not having clothes on and also again going back to how we have presented things as well Iranians in the West for instance Iranians for instance have, have been immigrating uh, to Western countries for many many years now mm-hmm. and they I don't know how it is in many other countries, but, for instance, in Scandinavia, they take up a lot of space in the and the Western media where they're weekly talking about how bad Islam is, how much uh, how much they suffered because of Islam in Iran, uh, and they talk about uh, how they've been suffering also in Norway, when they say anything negative about Islam Muslims attack them, blah blah blah. blah, blah. So it's a combination of, of that stories, those stories that are presented almost weekly. Here we have a few, like a five six Iranians that are almost like on a roll every week here, with one article after another. Um, and people don't see the difference between Islam and Iran. They don't see that those are two completely different things. Um, that the how the Iranian uh, government is is practicing their laws related to Islam. It's a very like their own version of it. Um, but it's, it's, it's mostly the, the concept of freedom that has developed over the years in the West that you have to be free. You have to look free. And the only way you can look free in their eyes is, is if you don't clothe yourself. Let's come to
4: the uh, let's come mm-hmm. to the issue specifically in Iran in a minute I mm-hmm. think that's an important mm-hmm. issue and we and that must be addressed um mm-hmm. a lot of people would be wondering um mm-hmm. if you're trying to circumspect that absolutely not so so uh, mm-hmm. we will come to that but I, mm-hmm. I I want to focus on on the on the hijab itself on the mm-hmm. um uh, on the reasons for taking hijab um mm-hmm. as well as on the advantages and disadvantages so mm-hmm. so firstly if I can ask you, why do you take? Mm-hmm. Why did you decide, uh, Ms. Islam, to take mm-hmm. your job?
3: I decided to wear the hijab because I felt like I needed it to to remind myself about becoming better. Uh, I needed it to let society know that I didn't want anything to do with their standards of uh, or their uh, their description of what freedom is, uh, or their standards of beauty how everything needs to be connected to my looks. Uh, I wanted to show them my pride in being a Muslim woman and how I'm so proud of it that I want to carry some sort of symbol uh, to, to prove my pride. Um, it is also, many people think that when, when you start wearing the hijab, it's sort of you telling the world, hey, I'm a perfect Muslim woman, look at me. Mm-hmm. But it's not. I'm, on the contrary, I think it's it's more of a reminder to me every single day that I'm not perfect and that I need to work on loads of things to become a better Muslim woman. But by wearing this scarf or wearing the hijab, I, it becomes a bit of an extra thing for me that okay, you're putting this on now. When you walk outside, people look at you and they see you as a Muslim woman automatically. They know that you're a Muslim woman. So how, how are you going to show that in your actions and the way you conduct yourself in society? Uh, you need to be extra mindful about how you talk to people, how you treat people, uh, what you are seen doing and not doing, um, the way you, you, if you, whether or not you're kind or, or all of that. So, so I think because you are under scrutiny all the time. Yeah, so so it's it's basically yeah. I did I did for me it was a very easy choice. I had been wanting to wear the hijab since I was eight, and I saw my mum wearing it, and I thought it was really really beautiful. And her explanation mm. of why she chose to wear it was really beautiful to listen to. But. I started wearing it when I was eight. Um, I was heavily bullied at school because everyone was saying, oh, it's because your hair is ugly that you started covering it up. And yeah, you know how kids can be. And I took it off, unfortunately, after just wearing it for three weeks. But I was only eight and uh, I didn't fully grasp the concept or understand why I did it. But then I worked on myself for a few years. I prayed and I learned more about it. I understood the, the meaning of it and and when I finally did decide to wear it, I wore it with much more strength than I could ever ever have had before that time. So what is it? Was a yeah.
4: Sorry, um, uh, Ms Islam, what does it mean to you?
3: My hijab for me, it's uh, I always use this word, and I'm going to use it again. For me, it means that it's a crown. It's it's for me, it's a part of my identity. It, for me it means everything. For me to not be able to wear it would be taking away a part of my soul. Uh, every time I hear a debate uh, locally going on about whether or not we should ban the hijab in public places, it, it, I, I start to shiver. I become worried because for me, it's like I'm going to feel like a part of me die. It's it's that important for me now because I've been wearing it for so, so many years, a huge part of my life. It is my identity. It is who I am. It is, it, it is my crown. It is, it is my pride. It's my joy. I find so much comfort in it. I find so much comfort in knowing uh, that I am all doing so much to, to become a better version of myself and I am trying to be a good representative for Muslim women. So it means everything to me. It really does. Mm.
4: Do you think it's also, it also allows um, you to focus um, at the workplace specifically uh, mm-hmm. on your work and other people also to specifically look at your work rather than... Um, uh, look at your looks or or um yeah, or something else.
3: absolutely. I, I I noticed that, especially when applying for 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 jobs after getting after graduating law school, uh, that sort of forced people to get to know me, um to talk to me, to sit down with me and have a two hour interview, to understand me, not judge me by my looks. They have to talk to me and listen mm. to what comes out of my mouth to really know who I am and that goes for em- any everywhere else um, uh, where I walk around um, that they need to because they probably have a lot of thoughts about how I am about who who I whether or not I'm a liberated woman whether or not I actually know what I'm doing whether or not I should be in the position I am in especially at work where I, I am in charge of 22,000 em- as I'm a legal coach for 22,000 employees. And when I walk around and present things for, for tons of those employees or I hold presentations and meetings, I feel like I, I, I can see on people's faces that they're a bit concerned. That, okay, we finally have a GDPR lawyer, but why is she? Like, she wears a headscarf. Her last name is Islam. Like, she's probably a super extreme. And <laughs> when they read my name in the program, they probably have a lot of thoughts about me or <laughs> see my picture with a headscarf on. But then when I come on stage and I start talking, I always see, I really make a point out of looking at people's faces while I talk. And I see it change. I see the, the facial expressions change. And for me, that's really fun because that really gives me the chance to, to define how I am um, being um, received, how I'm being understood, because I'm really letting my work and my my thoughts and and everything else related to my personality i'm letting all those things talk for me i'm not letting my looks define me at all
4: right Do, does it empower you in any way as well as islam
3: absolutely it does because it's it's i think there is no other religion more beautiful for me than islam um because it has given women uh, such a high position so much respect so much comfort and protection, and we're basically treated like diamonds and queens and everything mm-hmm. good. And and uh, when I wear that hijab as my crown, it makes me feel empowered because then I'm telling the entire world that hey, I'm a proud Muslim woman. My God has given me tons of rights. My God has protected me. My God has given me um, everything. Good and and I know that in front of uh, Allah's eyes, I'm I'm I mean a lot, and uh, this is my crown um, that indicates how much I, how much I valued I of a value I am in in my religion. So it's an empowerment in itself, definitely.
4: Right. Um, let's uh, um, come over to the uh, to the Iranian or or move to the uh, discu- move our discussion towards the protests in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, well, firstly, what are your thoughts on um Iranian police or or this moral police or whoever um mm-hmm. trying to put on hijabs on uh, on women's heads uh by force?
3: It's absolutely insane. I i look at those videos and I see everything that happened to Masa Amini and the, the torture that she went through and her unfortunate death and, and all the tragedies that are now happening with more and more women being killed during the protests. It's just insane. Um, it makes me think that how has Iran been practicing such a weird, uh weird, I don't know, weird, they have a weird explanation of Islam. Like they have a very messed up version of Islam that they're presenting to the world, because there is in in the, you've already talked about the verse about hijab and how God Almighty has commanded men to to look away and all of that, and then God has commanded women to to cover themselves up, but nowhere in that that verse does it say okay, if women decide that they don't want to wear the headscarf men should um, forcefully put it on them. Nowhere in that verse does it say that but still, the Iranian police think that God has given them some kind of rights to be that that man that or be those soldiers that are gonna force those women to to wear the headscarf. It goes against everything Islam stands for. It goes against everything Prophet Muhammad, uh, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, everything against his his life story. That we're supposed to follow his his teachings, the way he practiced uh, he, he, the way he practiced Islam. And he, one of the first things that he did was that under his rule, everyone was free. They were free to practice their religion. They were free to be who they wanted to be. Never did the state ever get involved in people's personal faith. Never did the state first forcefully make uh, people convert to Islam. Then if, if Prophet Muhammad never <laughs> did that, then who are we to force women to wear the headscarf? I don't understand. So it really disturbs me how, how that so-called moral police is practicing this rule that they are for some reason saying is is Islamic, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever
4: Anam Islam, thank you so very much for talking to us, it was an absolute <coughs> pleasure, thank you for your time
3: JazakAllah for having me
4: May Allah bless you um, Thank you very much once again. So that was um, Miss Anam Islam uh, talking to us um, from Scandinavia about her experience of uh, wearing the hijab, why hijab is important to her, and uh, her thoughts on uh, the unfortunate events in Iran and the unfortunate policies uh, of the government there um, uh, as well. Um, Let me now move on to another guest. we spoke earlier with um, Sogand Zakahagi. I uh, I truly hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sogand is an Iranian-Canadian mental health professional who holds a master's degree in counselling. She owns um, and is al- also the director of SZ Wellness Incorporated, where she conducts one-to-one wellness sessions focused on healing and growth. Let's listen in to what she had to say.
5: Sogand, I'm... Um- How do you, as a veiled Iranian woman, feel about the current situation in Iran? Um, Do you find yourself supporting women who want to take the veil off?
6: I honestly, I always support women in doing whatever they want to do. So yes, I'm Iranian. Yes, I'm veiled. But I'm also a mental health professional. And I understand that people come from different walks of life and they have different experiences and different decisions. So I support any woman who wants to take it off. And I support any woman who wants to keep it on as long as it's a choice I support women
5: choosing so I think that's an, an opinion that a lot of women are echoing right now um but from around the world that it's the choice which is the issue isn't it rather than the veil itself um, absolutely you mentioned the fact that uh, kind of like as a mental health professional like this kind of has kind of informed your, your opinion about it so how does um you know women dealing with that constant policing of their freedoms like how does that impact their mental health
6: Oh, it impacts them so negatively. So we know uh, from research that trauma impacts us in various ways. We're actually still trying to learn how trauma really impacts people because it's not a cookie cutter approach. Trauma impacts people in different ways. Religion and spirituality are two of the ways that trauma impacts people. So when you're consistently told that you have to dress one way or show up to the world as one way, and that is the only way that's acceptable, you start questioning your identity, You start questioning your belonging. You start questioning who you are. And so it has tremendously negative impacts. And that's why, if you look through my socials or listen to anything I've ever done, I always say that women and marginalized communities in general, but women in particular, need to always make decisions that feel good for them, that sit right with them at that time, rather than being told how they should feel, how they should act, how they should dress, because we never want to take agency away from people.
2: Let me
5: asking then, kind of based on what you've just said, um, just as a follow up question, because I'm really interested. Um, that can be quite difficult, though, isn't it? Do- doing what what you what feels right for you, but when there's so much social pressure around you, absolutely. Is, is there something that you could elaborate on that, please? For me personally, or for what I do, uh, up to you. But as you know, as a mental health professional, you know, how would you kind of go about that kind of cultural dissonance of what feels right for the woman? But also how is it impacting her mental health and how difficult it can be actually be to do what feels right.
6: Definitely. I think doing what feels right is usually met with some kind of pushback, whether it's cultural, traditional, um, any kind of status quo, any kind of norm. And so that can actually encourage people to never make any changes that feel right for them or start feeling guilt and shame if they do start making decisions that's right for them, especially if those decisions ever go against the status quo and go against the cultural norms. And so my job is to always hold space for people and be that safe space. So while they make decisions that are met with hostility to the outsiders, to anybody else, with working with me it's never meant that way i encourage my clients i will always support them i operate from radical kindness unconditional positive self-regard for myself as well as for my clients and so with that unconditionality means i'm completely a safe space for anybody and you know that at least clients know when working with me they won't be met with pushback when it comes to me and it's very important we know when people have been met with pushback in regards to making any change if you have one person that is on your side and as an ally it does tremendously improve your mental health so i'm honored to hold that space for people who work with me
5: yeah no i think absolutely right even just one person can feel that difference um yeah so thank you for that uh Answer. Um, So just kind of looking at the protests specifically now, they've obviously gained a lot of publicity in the Western media. Um, Do you think that's some sort of sign that things are changing, that, you know, things might be different this time, that there is kind of a possibility for a new future for Iranian women?
6: I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I think that Iranian women, you know, we are powerful, we are strong. And if you look through our history, we've always been this way. And we are not ones to back down. And so I hope that this time around, uh, with, with the fact that social media has been used in, in this, you know, regard, and people are speaking out, Iranians and non-Iranians, I do hope that, you know, it just seems like such a bizarre concept. All we're asking for is choice. And I do hope that um, they are granted the choice, wherever they are, to be able to show up as they want to. Like I chose this way. And I I think every woman should be able to choose the way that they show up to the world. I think that's so common sense. But unfortunately, it's not treated as such.
5: So thank you for your very candid answers um, on on a topic which is kind of changing quite quickly by the minute. um, And definitely one that everyone seems to have a very strong opinion about. Um, So thank you very much for giving us your time, uh, joining us all the way from Canada. And yeah, good, good luck.
4: So that was um, uh, Sugand Zak hagiki who, who we spoke with earlier. I now have uh, on the line uh, with us uh, uh, Mrs. Aisha Butt, who is a teacher based in the USA. Assalamualaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. alaikum. thank you for having me. Um, right, can, can I start by asking you, do you think hijab is uh, is an instrument of oppression?
7: Um, Personally, no. I do not. Um, I I do not think it is an instrument of um, oppression and um, I think that is personally so because, you know, we have been taught growing up the real reason for hijab and the the real reason for parda and Mm -hmm. able to see it in such a beautiful light uh, for its real tensions that it was, um, you know, brought to women. Mm -hmm. And uh, so personally, no, I do not think it is oppressive, um, in my personal opinion.
4: Have you ever felt at a disadvantage uh, by wearing the hijab?
7: <sighs> mm, a disadvantage, I would, I would say perhaps when I was younger, hmm. maybe, I think, uh, you know. So I, I am in America. I grew up here. Um, I live in Florida. And... Um, Growing up, seeing, it's very minor, but it goes a long way when you're in your childhood. Mm. It is like, you know, being in school and not being picked on just because you have an extra piece of clothing. Or not being easily approachable because of your, you know, attire or lack of or whatever it is. And um, in that sense, uh, I did feel it was a disadvantage. But I feel like when I learned about its importance and its significance, then it didn't matter after that time. Mm-hmm.
4: So. Yeah. Right. And and how do you feel about the, um, the current situation where on one side, women are forced to wear the hijab and on the other, here in Europe specifically, uh, women are forced to take it off?
7: I think it's sad. I think mm. it's very disheartening. And, you know, as um, the previous speakers have mentioned, as Anna mentioned, that it, it, it is the woman's choice and, you know, that's the real Islam. And Prophet Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, um, also intended it to be the woman's choice and should not be obligated or for it to be worn or not worn. And for some women, it's a representation of who they are and where they come from and, you know, their initial roots. So um, it it is very disheartening to see that happening
4: um, in certain areas of the world. And, and finally, do you think hijab is a symbol of patriarchy, to suppress women, to keep them under control?
7: I, I don't think it is. But I, I personally do not believe it, it is. But I do believe that that's how you know in Iran it is being used as, and um, hmm. I believe that how the media is seeing it as. Of course, that's and, and, so you know like when I grew up here in Florida and. On the day of 9/11, was when I wore I'm Pakistani, so I had shwarms on. That was the first time I wore shwarms in high school. It happened to be the day in 9/11 that day, <laughs> and I was never judged um, for it. Surprisingly, I, even though I had my own doubts, what people would say, but I had friends supporting me the next day, um, telling me to come to school. You know, they have my back. You know, like I don't you're safe with us. So I, I feel it's all, um, it's all about being educated and being aware and um, having the right knowledge and communicating with the people around you, uh, letting them approach you, letting them ask questions to become more aware of your religion and its underlying purposes for what you're doing or wearing. So, um, yeah. Right
4: well excellent thank you very very much um aisha for joining us all the way from um uh, from across the pond I really appreciate uh, you taking time out and doing this for us um uh, and and hopefully speak uh, to you very soon again
7: okay thank you brother
4: assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh may peace and blessings of allah be upon you right so uh, so we've spoken to um to three um guests um uh imam imran today and um, I guess I think f- first things first. It has to be said that uh, like Raha din the Quran says there is no compulsion, compulsion in religion. So I think what's happening in Iran is is totally un-Islamic. I think that's right. th- that would be a good starting point right. to sort of uh, uh, to wrap up uh, uh, this discussion. Mm-hmm. But if I can ask you, uh, what is the philosophy of hijab in Islam?
1: Right. So uh, Islam stresses uh, the relationship between body and mind and uh, it emphasises the link between one's internal and external state. So for example, if a person is in a bad mood and he tries to make his face like he's uh, happy, then there comes a time uh, when he starts feeling happy. And uh, in the same way, if a person makes a face as he, if he's crying, uh, his heart will go into a state of sorrow and after some time, tears will start falling from his face. So in covering, in wailing one's body, one's shield the hearts from impurities. So the goal of wailing is the righteousness of the heart and to inspire modesty in both men and women. So the philosophy of hijab is not the clothing itself. Rather, it is the modesty with which men and women have been instructed to live by. Uh, I'm not saying that the, that, uh, the hijab as a clothing can be disregarded, but the full uh, benefit of it uh, can only be attained when he, when the hearts and minds of both men and women, are pure. That uh, what the Holy Quran states, it said that all oh children, children of Adam, who have indeed sent down to you, ornaments to cover your nakedness, and to be a mean and to be a means of adornment. But the ornaments of righteousness that is the best that is of the commandments of allah that they are reminder and uh, similarly his Hol- holiness hazrat mirza masroor ahmed explained that it should always be remember that beauty lies in wearing the garna- wearing the uh, garments of righteousness and the garments of righteousness is available for both men and women who make the utmost effort to fulfill the pledges and trustes uh, trust of their faith with all their abilities and capabilities. So this is the philo- this is the philosophy of hijab.
4: Excellent. Thank you very very much, uh, Imam Imran, for explaining that uh, in detail. Okay. Uh, and once again, just to wrap up this topic, really sorry events are taking place in in um, uh, in Iran, and I think. Uh, It's very important for for our listeners to be able to distinguish between uh, what is true Islamic practice versus what's happening in some of the Islamic countries, um, as we see um, in the media, uh, which uh, is either driven by cultural reasons or other political reasons, uh, but uh, has nothing to do whatsoever with the actual and real Islamic teaching. Um, Islam is a religion uh, religion of peace. Islam is a religion um, uh, of empowerment. And and, and that is uh, the spirit of the religion. Right. That brings us um, towards the end of this topic. Um, We are now coming up to uh, almost 5 o'clock news. Um, So we will now take a break for that. When we come back, we shall talk about uh, something entirely different. So we shall talk about... Uh, the world of um, uh, 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 digital um, uh, digital devices and the world of digital media surrounding um, all of us, and the detox that we need as a result of that. Do you believe that there should be something called a digital detox? Do you think that's a good idea? Please do call us um, at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK to. Give us your thoughts and opinions. Um, on to the break now, and when we come back after the news, we shall go into a discussion on digital detox.
0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed.
8: Allah, Allah.
1: You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day.
4: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time show from Southland Studios of Voice of Islam. Um, we are going to be talking about digital detox now. So um uh, we are all surrounded by digital devices. Um, do you think it's it's a good idea? Do you think it's a bad idea? Please do join us by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, uh, and you can talk to uh, to me, Daniel Zia, or Imam Imran here live uh, at the Voice of Islam Studios. So, have you heard of the digital detox, or is it something uh, totally new for you, or have you? ever even tried one uh, did you also know that taking a break from technology not only frees up time but also has real mental health benefits stay tuned to today's show as we discuss all about the physical and mental health benefits of plugging off and spending time in the real world with real people We will also discuss how we can stay away from the absorption of social media and live a balanced and controlled life. So being plugged in is now the normal. That's the new normal that we've acquired uh, over the last couple of decades. Uh, If you're like most people, your smartphone alarm wakes you up in the morning, mine does suddenly. You get uh, ready with the TV news on and and, and then you uh, uh, scan your text messages. In my case, I scan the text messages Before I turn on the TV, though, Um, throughout the day, you can check your you check your email. I certainly do chat with friends and scroll through Facebook and Instagram. Not so much in my case, though. Uh, In the evening, uh, maybe you watch your favorite TV shows while online shopping and checking in on um, uh, on social media. And at bedtime, use uh, smartphone apps for uh, some people use this for meditation or even what's called white noise. So that's a typical day for many, many people um, around the world. And Unsubscri- unsuppri- unsu- surprisingly, so much screen time is stressed, um, uh, is spent actually uh, on, um, on our phones and our iPads and whatnot. And it is uh, unnecessarily stressing many of us out. Um, so what's the solution? It could well be something uh, like a digital detox, which can provide relief from the pressure of constant connection to electronic devices. Research has actually found that doing a digital detox may even help improve your sleep relationships and mood. So are you ready to try something like that? Do you think you can go without a day uh, of watching Netflix or or, uh, or looking at your messages Um uh, for a full day is that something you can contemplate doing or do you think that is uh, has become so normalized in society that that's a too far-fetched a uh, thing to even imagine please do let us know what you think by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. 687 imam and brian if i can ask you uh, what what is your typical day like
1: i mean uh, not not different to anyone right. but uh yeah i try to uh try to modernize my day try to uh limit my social media or uh phone use as much as possible because in my opinion um when i um, like uh i'm not use uh i don't use social media in my, in my opinion um i'm more focused in on my day and um um I'm more awake in a sense that uh uh I know what happening um, surrounding what 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 is happening surrounding me so in my case um I don't really like social media and I'm not any of the social media platform but but I still use like whatsapp or s- something like that but it uh yeah, so in my case the um it actually benefited me. Right. OK. Yeah.
4: Uh, and is that something that digital detox is like, would, would you would you attempt? Uh, and actually, before I ask you this question, let me share, uh, uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, a little bit of a my my personal experience. Sure. So I, I I tried a digital detox a few years ago when mm-hmm. I uh, I sat for um, Ithaca, which is this meditational prayer right. uh, that you have uh, in the month of Ramadan right. uh, and and you know you uh, you're supposed to uh, spend your uh, the last ten days of the month in in a mosque and uh, spend time in prayer and meditation mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it, and and because you're supposed to spend time in prayer and meditation you're you're required to turn your digital devices off um, and I did that and I tell you what you uh, it did improve my sleep <laughs> <laughs> and my mood
1: right, right, right
4: so um you know is that is that something that uh, you think is is a good idea
1: digital detox i mean absolutely because uh uh you see now um more or more more people are now uh being depressed and uh uh people are now you know um uh there are more marriages are broken now hmm. and more broken home i think one of the one of the reason is social media and one of the reason reason is uh you know um the excessive use of uh internet and excessive use of uh digital media mm. i think this is one of the reasons because you know um um uh i was thinking that um when i used to go to you know um to go to train or to uh go underground to to somewhere um not long ago i, I saw people that they are reading books Hmm. and uh, they're talking to each other, Hmm. uh, not indulging in social media. But now, like, people are everyone everyone is on uh, his phone and uh, I think um, I'm not saying that people are not reading books and uh, not having constructive discussion, but I'm saying that uh, they're still on the phone, right? (laughs) Whether or not they're reading books or not, they're still on the phone. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think uh, we really need to focus on uh, this issue, right? Yeah, yeah
4: absolutely. Very, very, very important topic it is. Yeah. Like, um, let me welcome Dr. Emily Lovegrove, who is an autistic psychologist, um, uh, and bring her in uh, to this discussion. alaikum peace be with you.
8: Oh, hello.
4: Hello, uh, Dr. Emily, can you hear us? I can. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much for joining us. Peace be with you
8: and with you.
4: Excellent. So, uh, it. Uh, Dr. Lovegrove, do you think digital media has become a, such a fundamental part uh, of our lives and that it, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to live without it now? And from a psychological perspective, how is that influencing um, uh, our mental states?
8: Well, from a psychological perspective, um, the more you do a thing, the more it becomes a habit to do without thinking. So it, we just make shortcuts. So if you are inclined to wake up, switch on your phone and instantly start looking at it, then that pattern becomes established. Uh, so it, it's easy to get into a habit without ever really intending to.
4: Dr. Lovegrove, uh, are you there? We, I think, have lost Dr. Emily Lovegrove. And we will try to get it back, um, yeah, as soon as we can. Right? Um, yeah. You know, going back to the question that uh, that we were discussing, um, uh, Imam Imran, yeah, uh, yeah, or, or the point that you raised. I mean, absolutely. Um, I was actually um, at a at a lunch yesterday only, mm-hmm. and you know, after five minutes of discussion. Uh, people were so awkward that everybody got their mobile phones out <laughs> True. and started to <laughs> scroll their mobile screens mm. instead of making an attempt to know the other person sitting next to you yeah. more or, or trying to trying to make conversation uh, there is no no attempt to do that because there is such an easy escape you know yeah. all you have to do is reach out to your pocket and take out your mobile absolutely. and um and, and you know you don't have to bother talking to the person yeah. sitting next to you
1: absolutely i mean uh even in in our ho- house like, like um even even if uh friends are sitting around and having sm- having a chat uh, um I noticed that, you know, uh, people are so used to take a mobile and uh, scroll down th- uh, through the social media that they don't realize that uh, real conversation are more important than, you know, scrolling mm-hmm. down the social media. And that's uh, really affecting our uh, psych- psyche. And I think uh, uh, in long term, it's not good for our mental health as well as physical health. As you said, absolutely. Not only that, it's affecting our relationships. It's affecting our
4: relationships at yeah. home. It's affecting our marital relationships yeah. uh, and all the other relationships as well. I think we've got uh, Dr. Emily Lovegrove back. Let's, um, uh, let's see if we can hear her now. Uh, Dr. Lovegrove, can you hear us?
8: I can. I'm Excellent. so
4: sorry. That's all right.
8: I think my Internet was
4: down. <laughs> no, that's that's perfectly fine. Well, you, you know, we're, we're talking about digital detox, so perhaps it's it was to be right. So um, uh, you were talking, you were telling us about the uh, influence uh, the yes. modern technology has on our mental states. So, do you think there's a, there's a correlation there?
8: I do. Um, I think what I was saying was that from a psychological viewpoint, um, we get into habits and our brains react to those habits by jumping to the thoughts very, very quickly. Um, so people wake up, switch on their mobile phones, and then they are there to hand pretty much until they switch off at bedtime. Um, And so if if you are making those shortcuts, it does become a habit or an obsession. Um, So it's quite difficult and and it does affect us. It affects our relationships because we don't necessarily talk to people. Um, You know, it's interesting to see if people are in a restaurant, how Mm -hmm. often all of them are on their mobile phones. And, right. and sometimes texting one another. Absolutely. Um, and of course, we, we also are very limited in the number of people that we actually follow. Um, we may say we follow lots of people, but the reality is we tend to stick to a fairly small number of people and we are influenced by their viewpoint.
1: Yeah, Dr. Emily, thank you. Um, we were just discussing um, before um, that, uh, you know, uh, the social media is really, um, I mean, uh, affecting our relationship, whether it's a society relationship or, uh, I mean, a um, marital relationship. So how can we find a balance in terms of uh, uh, digital media use and not letting it control us?
8: Um, I think... Once we recognise that it's a problem, and that's the first stage, I think a lot of people don't even recognise that it is a problem. But once you do, then I think we just have to be an awful lot stricter with ourselves. And one of the things that I find particularly disturbing mm-hmm. is parents with children, and right. the parents are on social media rather than reacting with the child, um, which is isolating for the child. It's not good for the relationship, and it's not good for mental um, and intellectual development and social development Mm -hmm. in the child. We Mm -hmm. need adults to be uh, communicating with children, Um, otherwise they don't learn those skills
1: right right uh, so uh, Dr. Emily, you mentioned that um child especially child are affecting by these social media, and nowadays uh gaming you know is very mm. famous uh uh, uh like f- famously famous on among the children. What's your thought on gaming that people that you know children are just uh, staying at home and not um actually playing real games and they're just insteading uh sit there at their home and playing video games.
8: I think we again have to go back to parents and Mm -hmm. if we watch reality shows on Mm -hmm. TV um, how is that different from watching people playing games Um, I also think that there's huge amount of pleasure to be had from gaming Mm -hmm. it's putting a limit on times and I think if Parents are able to do that in an amiable way and say, "Okay, I know this is something that you're desperate to do. Can we can we agree a time when you won't start before this time and you will finish by that time? And if you if it needs to change, we need to have a conversation about it. Um, right. I know in Silicon Valley." Um, parents there who work in silicon valley do not allow their children in the main to have mobile phones so Mm -hmm. they obviously see the dangers of it and and they are developing it so um (laughs) you know that tells its own story
1: yeah so uh, dr emily how how can we um program ourselves to take a break from social media while staying up to date with our uh, social circles
8: Mm, well the the reality is as we know really Mm -hmm. um, we rarely need to be absolutely up to date Um, we quite often log on because we feel isolated or lonely and people that we interact with we think of as friends, even if we have never met them Mm -hmm. in real life. Mm -hmm. And I know this is very true for a lot of young people, that they spend hours um, texting famous people who will never respond, but (laughs) they feel they have communicated something that's important to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, it's having those limits, isn't it? Right. And it's it's making sure that we do communicate because during lockdown, that that was our social life for a lot of us.
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Doctor Emily. You mentioned that uh, we should. You know, uh, we we talked about children um, playing video games and strolling down the social media. Should you? Th- mm. uh, what do you think that should? Should children also go on a digital de- so- detox? Or they um, opinion.
8: well, it goes back to the thing of having limits, mm-hmm. and depending on the age of the child, teaching kids that um they need to limit themselves on some things is really not a bad thing. it teaches them self control mm-hmm. um, you know in the same way that when they go to school they they can't be on their phones. Um, then, right. you know, I think you can. I think you can encourage it, but I also think you have to be very careful as adults that you are seen to do the same yourself.
1: Right, right, right. Last but not the least, uh, Doctor, <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine a life without the use of uh, digital media?
8: <laughs> well, I can, because I'm so old,
1: <laughs> actually.
8: <laughs> I've had far more years without social media than uh-huh. with. How you know? was
1: alive before social media?
8: Yeah, we phoned one another, yeah. we met up, we wrote letters to people. It has been set up mm-hmm. by people who are keen to pull us in. It's it's an obsession like gambling.
1: Yeah.
8: Um. And... So we fall for the tricks. There are headlines and we think, what? That can't <laughs> possibly be true. And, and so we click on it. Yeah. And, um, so I can imagine it. I have had my life enriched by it in mm. some ways. Mm. And in other ways, I, I am glad when I come off for a while. I, life is less frenetic
4: you know what when when you talk about uh uh when you mention that life uh, it sounds like a, a golden era to me a life where you used to write <laughs> letters and uh yeah. and it it you know it almost uh, uh, it, uh sounds to me like a world that which which for us for the for the modern generation only exists in movies uh, it's uh, a fairytale world absolutely yeah. it's uh, unfortunate that we've we've uh we've um we've We've come to this stage. Y- yeah. You've constantly mentioned the the importance of having balance, um, mm-hmm. uh, balance between uh, digital and 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 the non digital. How uh, like any advice, any practical advice you can give to adults, especially in terms of trying we, to achieve that balance?
8: I think there are apps on our phones hmm. that will do that for us. We can set times. And then we can go over it, but we have to change a fair amount of things, so which is a nuisance. Um, so you can get your phone to do it for you. Um, I tend to only use my phone in during certain hours. I mean, if it's a work call, people will phone me. People will email me and, and I can deal with it. Um, though again because of um social media and because of the use of our phones i know people who are emailed by work colleagues late into the evening and expected to answer quickly so i think we i i just think we have to learn a bit of self-control mm. um it's like being faced with a chocolate. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to just have. It, it is hard right. if it's in front of you. Trust put me. Put it away.
4: I've got a big sweet tooth, so I I can totally relate to <laughs> yes. to how, how hard it is to, to do that when it's uh, in front of you all the time.
8: It is so put it out of sight. Just mm. just recognize that actually yeah. you are not in control of your phone a lot of the time. Your phone is in control of you.
1: So, Emily, um, sorry, y- sorry to cut. Are you saying that this is this is a kind of an addiction?
8: Oh, absolutely. Yes, okay. I think that's exactly how social media is designed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to pull us in and to make us keep checking.
5: Mm-hmm. Oh, I
8: wonder if anybody else has responded. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anybody else has liked the comment <laughs> yeah, that I exactly. made. Um, right. So it is an obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely.
4: Thank you so very much, uh, Dr. Emily Lovegrove. You're very welcome. It was such a pleasure to speak to you.
8: And to you. Thank you. Peace be with you. Peace to be with you too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
4: So that was uh, Dr. (coughs) Emily Lovegrove, who is an autistic uh, psychologist um, uh, based here in the UK. Let me go straight to our next guest, who is Colin Waters. uh, And Colin is a digital media and content manager at SCCR. As-salamu alaykum, peace be with you, and welcome to The Drive Time Show. And peace be with you, my friend. Thank you very much, Colin, for for joining us. So as a digital media and content uh, expert, do you think uh, it is the right thing for people uh, uh, to be... Uh, it is, is it the right thing... For people to be given the choice to be able to log off and take time away and develop those apps um, that uh, you may have heard dr emily was talking about
0: yes yeah um i was fascinated by what she was saying actually um before i I answer the question it's probably a good idea to explain a little bit about about, uh the work i do and who i work for Mm -hmm. so as you said i'm the digital media and content manager for Sirenian scottish center for conflict resolution or sccr for short um, and as you can imagine from a job title like that, I do uh, spend a fair amount of time online and thinking about how other people behave when they're online. Um, mm-hmm. Our ultimate purpose at the SCCR is to prevent youth homelessness um, that's caused by family breakups. So we're all about strengthening relationships within families. Mm-hmm. The SCCR is it's a national resource center. We promote best practice in family conflict resolution, mediation relationship breakdown. And we do that via our digital resources, training, events, all of which are designed to improve understanding of conflict and emotional needs. Our conflict works. And we do that in order to change family lives positively. So having said all that, you're probably thinking to yourself, I've got something of a vested interest in actually trying to keep people online, <laughs> uh, to keep people um, looking at our website, for example. Um, in fact, we have in the past, when working with families, um, we found that the issue of electronic devices, whether we're talking about mobile phones, games, consoles, anything like that, we've we found the issue of electronic devices, or, or anything is equally addictive, has caused arguments within families. And... Um, but i think i think we sometimes focus too much on on the, the device itself the technology and forget what we're actually really talking about um is we're talking about respect about a matter of respect so if you're a parent who wants young person in your care to spend less time online because you're worried about what effect it's having on him or her and their schoolwork, or if you're a young person who resents being told to ration your time online both of these points of view essentially boil down to respect and feeling respected. When we don't feel respected, it makes us angry, it makes us frustrated. It usually leads to us having no time or respect for the person. And we've found time and time again that um, the foundation of positive family relationships is mutual respect. So I, I certainly think it's important for people to be able to spend time offline. But if we're talking about this this issue in a family context, That conversation has to take place in a way that both sides feel heard and that there can be an element of compromise. And if that's missing, all that can happen is that uh, both sides, they'll just feel entrenched in their feelings and you won't won't be able to move on from that to a more positive space. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, so, Mr. Colin, um you talked about uh, you know um, we, earlier we talked um, uh, with uh, Dr. Emily and uh, were having discussion that it is another kind of you know addiction. Uh, so, what are the what are some of the best ways people can stay in control of their uh, digital media usage?
0: Well, I sometimes feel this is the the key question of our age. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, uh, just today I, I was talking to a colleague and uh, he was telling me about um, a trip he made to a restaurant at the weekend and he said that um, if everyone at the table put their mobiles into a basket at the meal start and didn't ask for them back before the end mm-hmm. their table got a 10% off their meals. <laughs> <So> <laughs> maybe, maybe we're talking about financial um, <laughs> reforms for people to try and get keep them off digital media. Right. Um, if I can return to the area that the, the SCTR works in and just this year, we launched a project called The Three Brains, and you can find that on our website. Mm-hmm. This project grew out of, of recent scientific research, um, mm-hmm. which revealed that your, your heart and your gut contain neuroreceptors. And these are, these are cells that are more usually found in the brain,
4: mm-hmm.
0: yet they're in your gut and they, they're in your heart.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And they play a part, these receptors, um uh, through sending signals to your brain and helping your brain to make decision-making processes. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the healthier your brain, your heart, and your gut are, the better able you're um, to make decisions that will benefit your relationships. Right. And we we worked on that project with a neuroscientist, Professor Judith Pratt. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to me that the tips that Judith shared on how to boost mental and physical health, they strike me as as good tips for how to diminish the time you spend online. Mm-hmm. So Judith recommended exercise creative hobbies, getting a good night's sleep, spending time in person with friends and families, volunteering. (laughs) When I looked back at that list, I was thinking to myself, a lot of what Judith is saying is just actually common sense, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, And sometimes we forget about these things because of the digital sort of bells and whistles, the bright lights, the great noises that come out of our phones or devices. They're very Mm -hmm. distracting. And they, they, they take us away from just the common sense basics that, you know, we, I think we all know at heart actually make for a healthier offline time, you know, exercising, hobbies, sleeping, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. friends. not We're not reinventing the wheel there. Right. Um, I, I mean, even as I'm speaking here, um, some of those things, such as exercising, you could conceivably, conceivably still be using your phone. So, for example, you could be working out using a fitness app. But crucially, and this goes back to something your, your, your last guest was saying, crucially, you're making the phone work for you. You're not working for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're you're on the phone for a limited time and for a specific task. I think that's a healthier way to go into it.
1: Okay. So, um, uh, Colin, you talked about you um, work with the um, uh, partners or something like that. What what were you saying? I mean, you work with the... How how should I put that? Uh, So, basically, my question is, what do you think that... uh, How social media is affecting our... um, social um uh, relationship with others i mean uh in in whether it's husband or wife or your friends or your um parents how's it affecting
0: yeah that's a great question and i i think actually i think we have a sort of idea of how it's affecting us but it'll be fascinating in the years to come to mm-hmm. see you know how history judges it or what sort of um, research has been done on it and how it really has been affecting relationships between people. I mean, uh, the the, the apps that we're talking about and thinking about, they're designed to get Mm -hmm. your attention and then hold on to it. It's not an accident. Uh, These Mm -hmm. pop-ups and notifications, you know, we have a pop-up on our website. that's a fairly benign one It just asks (laughs) you about your experience using the website. But the algorithms that power certain social media apps... I mean, they're designed just to keep you scrolling. That's mm. their purpose. Yeah. And anger is a very effective emotion for keeping people hooked. Mm. Um, the problem is that, that people who've, if you've been online and you've been antagonized by something you've seen, say you've been on Twitter and something's made you angry, it's, it's not as easy to put that anger down as it is to put the phone down. Mm. And it can often spill into family relationships, into what you might call the real world, real right. life. All right. Um, when you add into that the generation gap, which is real, we've all experienced it. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of us uh, first as young people, and then later as parents. If you add in, if you add in, you know this in- added outside influence of social media, it can make for quite a combustible mix.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I-, I think the phone or the app often takes the place. I, 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 what it takes the place of, you could almost imagine it as being like a friend that right. your your parents or carers don't especially <laughs> approve of. Yeah. Uh, so if we can look at the, these phones, these apps, mm-hmm. not merely as a piece of technology, but if you could almost imagine them as being someone or something a young person has a, a relationship, like a friendship with, mm-hmm. it might be easier to deal with.
1: Right.
0: So say instead of demanding a young person give up or, or dramatically reduce the amount of time they're on the phone, you could say you could say to them you know i know you enjoy being on your phone and that it's a way for you to keep in touch with friends it's a way for you to to see what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. i'm just concerned you're spending too much time online if you if they're prepared to hear you out you should be prepared to hear them out try to see where they're coming from they might at least in their minds be a very good reason why they are spending so much time online and and be honest yourself you know um (laughs) ask yourself how much time are you spending online you know, mm. is it just one way street? Is it just uh, your young people that parents and carers are looking after? Is it just them that's spending too much time online? Mm-hmm. Just, I think the main thing, though, I would try and stress is just be honest. Yeah. You know, young people respond well if you're honest with them.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Colin, uh, from a parental uh, prer- 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 perspective, sorry, uh, how much control should uh, parents have uh, over their children in terms of uh, digital media usage?
0: Well. Before I say anything, um, what you're reminding me of is um, a survey that we mm-hmm. we conducted a few years back, where we asked parents and carers and their young people about their relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, it may surprise you, but more often than not, it was actually young people complaining about the amount of time parents and carers were spending oh. online than it was parents and carers. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't we shouldn't get stuck in a way thinking, uh-huh. you know, it's only young people who have. A problem with the amount of time they're spending online. It can be, sometimes it can be the young person wishing that their parent was spending okay. less time.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Your question was, you know, from a parental perspective, how much yeah. control should should parents have? Um, I I don't think there is a one size fits all answer there. Um,
5: mm-hmm.
0: When when you have relationships between parents and carers and the young people, when those relationships are healthy, then you can more easily open the kind of dialogue where both sides you know, you can negotiate and compromise an amount of time online that works for everyone. So it's, it's actually, before you are even get into that conversation, you want to focus on having a, a, a respectful, healthy, open relationship with your young person where you can have these kind of conversations. You know, if you want to focus more, I think what you want to do is focus more on the benefits to young people, and right. uh, for spending time offline, you want to point out to them the things they can do, the effect of having relationships, rather than maybe talking about punishments or bringing up negative emotions caused by a failure to, you know, work on reducing the amount of time people are spending online.
4: Colin, uh, do you think we can be slightly more pres- uh, prescriptive with younger children? So, uh, you know, wh- where do you stand? What's your opinion on? Um... Uh, on giving mobile devices and and iPads and whatnot to you know six-year-olds, four-year-olds, and them uh, spending so much time on uh, on digital media just because you know that's a good way of parents to 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 do something else.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've read conflicting information on it. You know, in terms of science and research, um, some people think it's. Actually, giving uh, digital devices to young people is fine. It develops their sort of eye-to-hand coordination. Um, it, it can it can have a sort of positive effect in terms of learning. Some people think, and then there's other people who think it's you know digital mind thought and nothing good can come of it. I, I, I tend to sit somewhere in the middle you know um, mm. <laughs> I try not to uh, let myself be over affected by the fact that I was born in the 70s and brought up in the 80s and so the handheld device that I like to book <laughs> you know it doesn't need a battery um, it's just you know um, it's a way of learning about the world that doesn't involve having to plug in but that's me because I'm I'm a hundred years old now <laughs> so, I I I think I think I think again. It just comes down to parents informing themselves um, and having a good relationship with their kids, uh, so that if they do feel that they're spending too much time online, they can have that conversation where they can ask them to put it down, and 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 you know uh, work on work on real life relationships. I mean, some people do, and maybe early on use television or, or computers as a sort of babysitter while they have to pop out the room and do something and that's fine but you know all things in in moderation i think and if we keep that in mm. mind you know i think i think we'll be all right
4: yeah balance absolutely i think that's exactly what uh, dr emily was saying earlier as well uh, however if i can just um go back to s- uh, something you said around uh surveys being done or or or, or history being the, the judge I think you said something along, along those lines do you think it's uh, it's okay for for us to allow ourselves or our generation uh, to be the guinea pigs
0: well I mean that's a, another big question um, it's, it's, it's it's well we are the guinea pigs whether mm-hmm. we like it or not we mm-hmm. are
7: mm-hmm.
0: and so um, it's going to be the case that you know, 20 and 30 years' time, we'll have a clearer idea about this. Um, I mean, sometimes, uh, go back to what I was saying earlier on about being online and, you know, you see stuff and you come off it and you're feeling negative yourself. Uh, I sometimes think of the great writer Kurt Vonnegut, and he said about television that television played the same role uh, today as lead water pipes did for the Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> I, I sometimes think, Kurt, if only you'd been around to see social media, uh, you would have revised that and thought maybe social media was closer. Television seems quite benign to me now, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, maybe we just have to keep in mind, you know, um, it's it's if you look at just the past 50, 60 years, there are recurring panics about new technologies that come in. People were panicked about 7-inch records and Elvis. People were panicked about television when it came in. I remember the 1980s when I was playing, you know, the Spectrum 48K, people were worried about kids spending too much time online then as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, necessarily we are the guinea pigs and we are, particularly parents are worried about what the effect this is having on their young people. But I think with that in mind, all we can really do is, you know, uh, we ourselves as parents, as carers, is just try and keep those relationships with young people healthy, try and persuade them positively that there's there's better ways um, to be, that you can live offline and get a lot of the things that you're finding online. Uh, and just 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 have those healthy, um, respectful um, parent-carer, young person relationships that, that keep families ticking over even in, in difficult times. And if there's anyone out there who's listening and they'd like to learn more about tips or advice on how to keep your family re- relationships respectful and healthy, check out our website at mm. www.scottishconflictresolution.org.uk uh, Also as Scottish in the title, you can in fact access it from anywhere in Britain or indeed around the world as long as you've got an internet connection.
4: Well, I fully agree with you um, that and, and Dr Emily as well in terms of the fact that first and foremost we as parents have got to be role models and we've got to uh, We've got to lead by example, so there are absolutely no things about that. But you mentioned the television. Um, I, I I think the, you know, isn't it um, the research around the uh, um, you know um, around mental health issues that youngsters are having, teenagers are having, this whole culture or, or habit of instant gratification that uh, that people have now because of social media. So is is isn't the evidence already there for us to be slightly more prescriptive about social media? Is it not more serious than, you know, the the TV example that you gave earlier?
0: Well, I mean, the, the reason I gave that example was just to show that, you know, every 10, 15 years as technology develops, um, parents, uh, it's, in that 10, 15 years, young people go from being young people towards being parents and they kind of forget that you know, when they were young, their parents were concerned about them spending so much time on the spectrum 48K or or MySpace, or something like that. <laughs>
2: um,
0: in terms of, of the control exerting it, yeah, I mean, sure. But, I mean, you'll find that your children will be more willing to listen to you. The young people will be more willing to listen to you if, you, if, if you're if you coming for a place of mutual respect and they know that you're saying get offline because they, they have your best interests at heart, not just because, you know, uh, they think that you should be tidying up your bedroom or mowing the grass for them or something like that. You know, there has to be a bit of um, give and take between parent and young person. And in that way, as I say, you'll keep family relationships much healthier. I think as well, if we just, you know, um, find, try and remember ourselves, what it was like when we were young and we were fascinated by, you know, uh, computers or televisions or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, bear, bear in mind as well, uh, I guess we're sort of picking on... Um, of social media and, and phones uh, as a sort of easy explanation. A, a young person today, you know, if, they've, if they were born, say, in the past 15 years, they've been through a credit crunch, They've been through Brexit. <laughs> if you've lived in Scotland, you've lived through an uh, independence referendum. You've lived through President Trump. You've lived through COVID. You've lived through... Boris you know, Johnson. Terror- yeah, <laughs> Boris Johnson. You've lived through some terrible things. And, you know, that's going to have effects on
4: you young You said people, that, I didn't. You know? yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll take the blame for that. But, you know, they've lived through some really tough times, tougher than, I think, when, when, when I was growing up. And that's mm-hmm. got to have an effect on people's mental health, you know. And I, I don't know if it really is, if, if our worries about social media and technology are, are more a symptom of larger problems than they are the problem themselves. I, like, like I was saying earlier, we need some time to get perspective on that, but that really isn't of much use to, say, someone who's, in contention with a young person because they believe they're spending too much time online mm-hmm. and it's having an effect on their mental health. I don't, I mean, to go back to what Professor Judas Pratt said to us when we were doing the Three Brains uh, project, I don't think there's anything wrong in trying, and saying to a young person, you know, get on your bike, go mm-hmm. for a ride, it's a nice night, or <laughs> go to the youth club, or, you know, read a book, or take up a, write a book, become right. creative, you know. The, that That's not to displace you know the, the the phone or technology from their lives. It just expand the range of activities. And a young person who is spending too much time on online and indoors, they're not exercising, not feeling good about themselves. They themselves will see the difference if you can persuade them to go out and do a bit of that. They'll be they'll be feeling physically and mentally better, and therefore they will have the proof and the evidence of what you were saying there themselves um, within a short period of time. So, you know, it is about just having that, that, that trust between parent and carer so that when you do say that to them, they think, okay, they're telling me this, I will put down my phone, I will go out and try and get a bit healthier or, or do some more reading. Oh, look, I, I do feel better. Mum, dad, the carer was right. And that, that's a good way to, to just, for family relationships, that's something good for them to build on.
1: Mm-hmm. So Colin, um, um, previously I was uh, reading in a survey that uh, you know more than eighty percent of uh, children aged between nine to uh, thirteen uh, accidentally going onto the pornographic website uh, and there is then uh, cyberbullying so how can what's the plan? How can we safeguard our children from these kind of things
0: Well, wow, another big question um, I, I think it's worth keeping in mind uh, mm-hmm. that a young person's brain. Is still developing right up to the age of 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I read, uh, I was surprised <laughs> because, <Awesome. laughs> you know, we ask we ask young people to, they can get married when they're 18, they can join the army, they're paying taxes, they've got a job. Mm-hmm. In fact, their mind is still developing up to the age mm-hmm. of 24. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when, when you talk about young people's, say, predilection for risk-taking, Uh, obviously if a young person in your care takes a risk you 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 get worried and you often get angry you know Mm -hmm. uh, because of that but you have to remember that the reason perhaps they're taking a risk isn't isn't just a lack of experience on their part or even just you know if you want to go down that route wickedness Mm -hmm. they're being bad for doing it it's because their mind is still growing and developing Mm -hmm. so I, I take what you're saying you know you do want to keep young people away from, say, pornography or whatever, because I don't think myself that can have a good effect on a developing mind. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure that has a good effect on a mind that's developed either, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. It's not, not just young people who should avoid mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think to, to, uh, to go on to the subject of keeping children safe online, and that's not entirely within the uh, SCCR's mm-hmm. bailiwick, but I, w- I would just say, and I know this is, I hope I'm not uh, boring your, your no. listeners by keeping coming back to this theme, but if you're keeping those relationships strong, if you're keeping that dialogue open, even when you're tempted <laughs> to walk out and go and huff yourself, you know, there's none of us that, that can't go down that route. If we can keep those relationships strong and open, I really think that's a great foundation, not just for talking to young people about technology or or, or being online about a range of issues, you know, mm-hmm. that might might be worrying them or worrying you. As, as we were just saying, there's a heck of a lot of things going on in the world mm-hmm. right now that can worry people and have an effect on their mental health. And I, I think I think what is key key to to, to a, a healthy mind and a healthy life is what I've been saying along. Mm -hmm. strong relationships between people open relationships open dialogue if we have if we have those i think i think you know no matter what the digital world throws at us we can recover from that and we can have happy lives and good family lives
4: too colin waters what a pleasure speaking to you thank you so very much for joining us today and making all of us wiser thank you
0: (laughs) thank you And uh, always a pleasure to talk to Voice of Islam. It's a fantastic radio station. And uh, like I say, if you want to catch up what we're doing at the SCCR, our website is www.scottishconflictresolution.org.uk.
4: Got that. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Cheers, thank Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Colin Waters
4: from the Digital Media... um, uh, He's the Digital Media and Content Manager at SCCR, uh, as he explained. Um, Right, and, uh, you know, the... The theme, um, or, the, or if I can summarize the two conversations with uh, Dr. Emily and with Colin uh, over there, you know, I think it uh, two points really uh, come out screaming at me. One is uh, the importance of having relationships, uh, of creating relationships, uh, creating that important family unit, and the other is about um, having moderation and balance uh, in life. And, and that reminds me of a narration of... Uh, from uh, Prophet Muhammad, May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It's narrated by Abu Huraira that he said that be moderate and adhere to moderation for there is no one among you who will be saved by his deeds. So uh, moderation is really the key to success and that is, you know, having that middle path and adhering to that middle path is what uh, Islam is all about. Uh, is it not Imam Ram?
1: Yes. Yes, um, I think there was a hadith that khairul umuri awsatuha that uh, the best part is uh, the middle part, and I think um, mm. the more we focus on this hadith, the more we uh, understand that how important is in uh, the moderation in life uh, altogether. So uh, I think moderation is the key to success. So yeah, you're absolutely right.
4: Yeah, and and, and uh, you know one more um, verse actually that um, I'd like to. Uh, to mention here uh, from the holy quran and 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 that talks about you know how important is it for us to be in control ourselves so this is from chapter 4 verse 44 and it says oh ye who believe approach not prayer when you're not in full possession of your senses until you know what you say so mm-hmm. it's important for us to be in control uh all the time and it's important and, and when we go from one app to the other or when we go from one notification to the next we are not in control of ourselves yeah. and 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 we lose that control and we lose that objectivity and mm-hmm. we just um swung by emotion
1: right so um i mean in if you look towards uh, the teaching of Islam, you mentioned that uh, you um uh you stay. uh i mean off, yeah uh, which is one of the um kind of meditation and uh right. also fasting so in fasting we also uh we also get the lesson from fasting that you know uh to sometime it is better to you know leave our privileges and to just to remember uh, our creator and i think uh this mm-hmm. one of the solutions is in my opinion to um just take a break and then find out o over uh, yourself that what um how it benefit you and how can you improve yourself and uh people are really struggling in this uh, um and relationships especially between husband and wife and society relationship um all together so yeah. Yeah. personally i Absolutely. I think you
4: summed it up very well. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all about uh, making us uh, better people, better, uh, better husbands, better wives, better sons and daughters, and uh, and, and brothers and sisters, and uh, and that's the real jihad. I mean, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's another topic for another day. But uh, you know, the term uh, jihad is also used, unfortunate, um, with, with very negative um, connotations in the Western media. But that's what. Uh, the real uh, jihadist where did uh, jihad uh, really mean struggle? Mm-hmm. Um, so, right to wrap up uh, uh, this particular discussion, we're almost coming to the to the six o'clock news and towards the end of our program. So, um, how do we make a digital detox work for ourselves? So, w- a digital detox really can be can be whatever we want it to be and can take many forms. We m- might want to try giving up on all digi- digital devices devices at all uh, at a given time. Uh, or we might try to um, do that in phases and, and and try and reduce our television uh, um, watching or uh, reduce our um, uh, our consumption on social media or reduce the use of uh, of the mobile phone some other um, ideas that <laughs> that you may consider trying so there is um, Uh, You can try what is called uh, a digital fast. So try giving up all digital devices for a short period of time, such as up to a day or a week. Um, I tried that, like I mentioned, uh, for 10 days, and it it certainly did work for me. Uh, Recurrent digital abstinence is another one. So pick one day of the week to go device-free. Yeah, that's a a really good suggestion as well. Uh, Another one could be a specific detox. So if one app, site, game, or digital tool is taking up too much of your time, Focus on restricting your use to that problematic item. And then finally, you can try, um, uh, you have to be slightly brave for this one, a social media detox, which is focused on restricting or even completely eliminating your social media use for a specific period of time. So those are some of the practical suggestions that uh, uh, that we can offer our listeners today. Let me end the show with the words of Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad who is the current and the fifth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community may Allah be his helper and he said media has brought us close to each other but unfortunately rather than bringing closer to virtues has brought us closer in following satan in such circumstances an Ahmadi should ex- should exceedingly keep an eye on our conditions. Allah the Exalted has bestowed us um MTA which is Muslim Television Amitia. Allah the Exalted has given us websites for spiritual and educational programs of the community. If we if we if we turn most of our attention only then our attention will be to this matter that take that takes us nearer to God and be the one who are saved. From Satan. So those are the words uh, spoken by uh, the head of the Muslim community on the twentieth of May, twenty sixteen, and that uh, brings us towards the end of the show today. I must thank our producers, our researchers, who um, uh, did a great job in both researching and producing our show and putting uh, together a a collection of. Uh, some lovely guests who gave us uh, some excellent advices and made uh, this show really worthwhile. Thank you very much to our listeners who who listen to us uh, as well. There will be another Drive Time show tomorrow at 4 p.m. There will also be another uh, live breakfast show uh, tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., um, uh, which my friend uh, Mr. Kayoum uh, will be presenting. So do join him for that show at 7 a.m. tomorrow and and the Drive Time at 4 p.m. Um, until next week, Assalamu Alaikum, Rahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.